ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Hot Dogs and Caviar. Uh, Nate and I are proceeding in with almost no plan, as per usual. Uh, we've spent the last minute and a half planning this episode, so you're going to see that it's maybe a little more uh, structured than some of our other ones. Um, first yeah. off, <laughs> I'd just like to say on the air, thanks to my man Nate Dog, because we went and got some wings today, and he got me, it's either a late birthday present or an early Christmas present. It's just the best damn thing I've ever seen. So, you guys know I sometimes use, use the nickname Mouth of the South, which was bestowed upon me by Sheree McDowell because I run my mouth constantly. Like, working with me is kind of like listening to the podcast. Just an endless, <laughs> just an, <laughs> an endless stream of garbage. <laughs> um, you can tell when I'm really weeded because that's when the talking stops. Like, if Jesse's quiet, he's probably in some trouble. <laughs> Go see what he needs. Um, but uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, because you just didn't watch wrestling in the 80s, not that the South is a nickname borrowed from uh, Jimmy Hart, who is this obnoxious Southern heel manager who would just, he, he would like, he'd just like wear a black velvet jacket covered in red satin hearts and just sunglasses and a big old mullet and a big old 80s mustache and just talk about various wrestlers that he was promoting and he just had so much personality but it wasn't exactly the good kind of personality he was like one of those guys that you like because of how much he makes you want to punch him which <laughs> like really only makes sense in wrestling are there the kind of people who just are just so aggressively irritating that you're like I want to see them put, get put through a steel table yes <laughs> uh, great character it's, it's a framed picture of jimmy hart and it's autographed and i didn't even notice the certificate of authenticity until i got home <laughs> <laughs> nate, nate went all out so <laughs> every time i use that nickname it is an homage partly of uh sheree's uh it was sheree's funny and that was a funny thing to call me because i just chattered constantly but also an homage of a truly great larger-than-life figure from 80s professional wrestling. It had to be done. It had to be done. <laughs> this is a completely, completely excellent uh, <laughs> excellent birth birthday slash Christmas gift. So, damn, Nate, thank you so much. That's awesome. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> and then we had wings, and they were really good. That they were really good. Subtle tie-in to last week's wing episode. They and we got some free Jameson because Jesse lifted a beer keg for the bartender. That's That's true. I mean, uh, the bartender's like, uh, she just didn't have anybody with her. And she's, she walks up to me right at the bar and goes, I'll buy you a shot if you give me some help. I was like, what do you need? She's like, I need you with this keg. And I was like, I work with like three female bartenders and not one of them will lift the keg. So I got your back, boo. And then she poured <laughs> me and Nate fishbowl-sized shots of JMO. <laughs> True. And I didn't even have to do anything. Right. <laughs> he, just, he just got, he just was uh, denied by, denied my presence for a minute and a half. And then she made me tap it. She's she got like, one good look at me, though, and she's like, not the gangly guy, the big guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, what I need is just a, just a big oaf to lift something heavy for me. <laughs> to Dee Dee Peckers and their hot garlic wings. All right, uh, Nate's got a listener question to start things off today. Okay, so I was kind of stumped by this one, and I want to see if you have any recommendations. So I was asked if there's any, if we, if I knew of any books specifically on about blending spices and like spice blending combinations. Like I was talking with, with, um, with my buddy and he was looking for something like that. And most of all the books that we know of were like identification and like 
encyclopedic kind of books yeah. that's really not what he, he was looking for and i i was kind of stumped man i was thinking like that o-t-t-o-l-e-n-g-h-i he's got a ton of books yotam odolengi i don't know anything about this yotam odolengi yes huh i don't know anything about this dude he's pretty good at blending spices well, you know, well, I can't think of any books specifically on blending spices. I don't think there is one because here's the thing. You go to every different culture and they've got a different spice blend. Like, mm -hmm. let's just go around the globe right now. Like in the U.S., we have, um, well, in, in, in the like North America, U.S. and Canada, we have uh, like seasoned salt, uh, shrimp boil, Creole seasoning, uh, Montreal steaks, uh, steak seasoning, which I don't know the origin story of that, but it has to have one. That's it's interesting that it's called that. Well, I mean, there's there's countless examples, but I was kind of going back to like you know like the flavor bible or the flavor pairings, and because he, he had those, and it just really wasn't. I was like, yeah, there's such a crutch, like blending and like coming up with your own blends and balances and stuff is so personal and it's so intimate and let, no let me, two people will identify the same flavor the same way so like i told him like the way that we used to do it and we would have people instead of going to the flavor bible to kind of come up with flavor pairings go smell the cumin then put it down and smell the paprika and smell that you know and like just try to develop your own well and the thing is the reason, the, the point that I was coming around to is that you move into a different country and there's all different blends of a lot of different spices. You move into a different country, whether you're looking at Europe or whether you're looking at the Indian subcontinent or whether you're looking at North Africa, like, or whether you're looking at Japan, like there's so many different blends. And I'll tell you what, I, I don't think anyone's tackled that. And at least not to my knowledge. And the very, I think the reason why is because these spice blends are so culturally specific. You're right. Like, Every once in a while, you'll have something like Madras style curry powder that jumps the rails. Like Madras style curry powder, Indians, Indian cooks don't use curry powder. Curry powder was a, a, a way to create an easy Indian spice mix for French and British cooks to use. Like that, the flavor, pro, the flavor profile jumped the rails and uh, it became a spice in a different culture, but that doesn't happen that often. So it's, it's, I think that the difficulty is I don't really know why certain spices go with why. I've never thought about why. That's not how my mind works. The way my mind works is I think, okay, here's a dish where I've got lamb and cumin, so I could go in a North African direction. And I already know that once I've got lamb and cumin, then probably cinnamon, cilantro, turmeric would also go well because those are are also parts of the sort right. of the, the basic North African cord. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I don't know anyone that's just concentrated on how to blend spices. Yeah, me either. I couldn't come up with anything. And I asked several um, cook friends of mine if they had could think of anything, like fellow cookbook junkies. And everyone's coming up nil. Like, I've mined some good blends out of multiple books and built them into my own repertoire and, like, things that I've, you know, come to – build my own flavors and my flavor Rolodex, if you will, but nothing specifically on like blending, like, you know, things like that. Well, for I, sure not. I'm just looking at spice books and there are a lot of spice books. Yeah. Uh, but they're mostly just like encyclopedias kind of horticulture. It's interesting. It's an interesting conundrum. 
Because the thing is, like, here's one that's like Mastering Spice, Recipe and Techniques to Transform Your Cooking. And it's written by Genevieve Co. And, and uh, Yorlev Sersars, uh, maybe, or Sirkars. I'm not sure. But the interesting thing about that those names is those name, what's an Asian woman's name and what looks like a sort of Middle Eastern man's name. And I wonder whether when you read that, you're not going to get some sort of inherent cultural bias because everyone knows the spice flavors that they grew up with is can anyone really divorce, truly divorce themselves from, from their own personal experience? You know what I mean? It's like, how do you do that? Yeah. It's just so many layers. It's so many, it's like some people kind of have a knack for it and like blending and like using spices, but some people just grow up with those flavors and it's just like, you know, part of their fabric and then, you know, like the only book that I could think of that might be something similar along, there's the, the three-star chef, um, Oliver uh, Rollinger. He's uh, in Brittany and he's like the spice guy. Um, I don't have the book. I've read it. Um, it's like 60 bucks. It's probably out of print, but he gets into a lot of spice, spice blending. But then again, it's so much to like, <laughs> you know, an interesting thing about this is that, um, first off, no, I just... conquests and occupation and spice trade, like some real brutal shit, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it'd be interesting to learn the history of it. Honestly, first off, just checking myself a little bit. I looked up Genevieve Co. She was born in LA. Uh, so uh, the fact that she looked Asian in her picture didn't mean anything, but then I thought, okay, well, so she's not foreign. Uh, and so oh, and immediately what I was, I was looking at, you know, the two authors and being like, what cultures do they come from? Are they going to bring that with them? Not that that's a bad thing, but it definitely limits the scope of what they're trying to do or changes the scope, mm -hmm. not even limits, just changes the scope of what they're trying to do. I don't think I could write a book on spice blending where I didn't refer to the tradition of blending because sometimes those things are co-evolved. Like, you know, I know what works in Indian food because I've cooked some Indian food. And so if my brain is thinking in Indian mode, I think, okay, well, I've got ginger and garlic and I've got mustard seed. So some Cuban will probably be nice and maybe some chili pepper. I sort of stay in those lanes. Very regional, very, yeah. So like you and I have like a lot of culinary bandwidth. Like we can really spread out but in order to like really get dialed in, you got to get like hyper focused and hyper regional. Right, you know, I don't know how really you tune I, in. I don't know how you'd write. You know what this might be? This might be a place where something like the Flavor Bible would be a little bit less hollow. Like yes, some, more and more of a collection of authorities and experts and someone that could just compile all these things. And this is so-and-so he is an expert in this style of Szechuan cooking. And here is his Szechuan chili blend, you know? And then, well, and then I was thinking you could get really granular. It would take forever. Oh yeah. But what if you Huge just had, undertaking. what if you had a tasting panel or a smelling panel and mm -hmm. then, uh, Kind of do what you said where you go into the pantry and you just smell the things together and uh, i think ratatouille touched on this a little bit the movie when you watched him like build that dish uh ratatouille by the way is one of the best pure cooking movies ever made and if you haven't seen it you should um like smelling two things together what if you got a tasting panel of chefs from you got from all over the world like if you had someone from morocco someone from india 
a couple of people from different regions of China, you know, all any region that uses spice, a Thai, a Thai person, uh, someone who is Japanese, or even not necessarily someone from these cultures, but someone who is an expert in the cooking of these cultures. Because like, yes, you, there's plenty of Japanese chefs that are uh, American, and there's Japanese style chefs who are Americans, and there's plenty of chefs in Japan who are experts at French cuisine. Like, so yes. I'm not talking about the culture of the person so much as I am talking about the expertise of the person. You get these people who are expertise uh, in, a, in enough, you get a, a panel of like 30 people. So you try to iron out some of that bias because you have people from all over, you know, somebody from each content, except maybe uh, Antarctica seems like a stretch because <coughs> I think that's pretty much penguins. I'm not sure. I think <laughs> Antarctican cuisine is just cuisine that you eat out of a can that you cook up, heat it up on a propane stove because you're an ice researcher or something. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but wouldn't it be cool to just get, and then get a whole bunch of different spices maybe, I don't know, 30 or 40, like a reasonable number. Um, but then have each each panel smell the various spices in conjunctions of two and write whether they thought there was an affinity or whether it seemed to clash. And then take all the things where there was an affinity with the region of two, where a majority of the panelists thought there was a, an affinity with two and add third spices. You know, take take two things that had affinity with each other and bring them together as a triad and see if they have affinity as a triad and then keep on going down just by smelling and smelling and evaluating like that works or that doesn't work until you figure out maybe some uh, some it would be interesting just to to, to, to yeah, do it'd to be do a this. huge undertaking, but it'd be incredibly complicated. And then it would all circle back to the ratios, like what ratio like two parts pepper, one part cumin, one part cinnamon, half a part, you know, whatever, clove. You know who I, I want to see right in this book? I want to see this whole thing organized by Heston Blumenthal and Nathan Mirfold. Yeah, that's the kind of money and research and brains that would have to be behind it. Right, we are not, we are not smart enough for this one. No, not, not even close. And also just, I don't know that, I don't know enough chefs. Like I know a lot of chefs, but the thing is you also tend to know a lot of chefs in your own style. Yeah. Like I'm acquainted with three dozen chefs. I know like on a first name basis, hundreds more that I've just worked with a little bit. I know one Indian chef and I haven't seen him for 20 years. Right. The, assembling the people necessary to do a truly culturally neutral experiment would be an undertaking. It, it would, would take super, years. Oh, once you assembled everything, I could see you getting it done pretty quick. Uh, but you'd have to have everyone in a room together and all the spices ready. And the logistics would be ridiculous. So it's an interesting. It would be ridiculous. It's an, you know, and it's interesting because it would also be kind of cool to have people that weren't chefs at all. Like people who just, I mean. I, I well, mean, there's aroma experts. There's those perfumers. There's, there's all kinds of stuff like that aroma book co-authored by uh, Daniel Patterson. That was another suggestion I had, but those are more like essential oils. Well, every spice has an essential oil. Mm -hmm, exactly. Or, uh, so but yeah, I think the whole thing is just fascinating. Like it's, it's, I think that my best advice for someone who wanted to learn about blending spices is just the book doesn't exist. There's no easy answers. But what I would say to get good at it is just find a spice blend you like, and then try to reverse engineer it. 
That's a good call. Yeah. Reverse engineering is a you know, like, really, really good technique. Whether it's whether it's something super simple, like just Cajun seasoning, or something really exotic, like Raza La Nut, which is the Moroccan analog to curry powder. Mm-hmm. It has, you can have over like 25 ingredients. Whether it's something super ultra simple, like lemon pepper. Catrapiece, is that how like, you pronounce it? Yep. Sounds, like, right. you're saying, sounds like you're saying cat piss. Catrapiece. Catrapiece, uh, or, you know, like. Yeah, Chinese five spice. Chinese five spice. Uh, reverse cat, engineer that. By the way, catrapiece it means four spice. It's a traditional yep. uh, pate spice. Pate and... spice blend. What's funny is that you can't really, people don't always agree on what the four spices are. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, they're like, it's essentially like pepper mixed with a few cookie spices. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. and it gives your it gives your ground meats this great northern european flavor that i can't yep. describe any other way um no, that's perfect speaking of spices did you try the spice chocolate cookies i made not yet they are still sitting in the pan with okay. uh, the drawing of a, <laughs> the drawing of a wiener that you put on them for me yeah there Nate, you go yeah Nate, Nate brought me cookies uh i will i will I make I'm, cookies for boys yeah, because those um those are those are delicately spiced. Um, Ooh, they're yeah. from uh, my great grandmother's recipe, and um, there's you know a lot of the you know cookie traditional cookie spices, but instead of the traditional spices, I substituted Chinese five spice from the one and only source in the universe, the Jesse, spice house. the spice house, the spice house in Chicago. Yes, we that's be li- the best five spice. We will be linking. Uh, the Spice House in Chicago to the blog hot dogs and caviar.blogspot.com. Uh, for no other reason, no one pays us for anything for any reason ever. ever. But, and if we give people shout outs and whatever, it's just because we love them. <laughs> so, so far, the only profit of any kind that we've gotten from hot dogs and caviar, uh, was uh, when we were discussing it at uh, the bar today, the girl gave us shots of Jameson, and that was unrelated to the hot dogs and caviar thing. That was more. Uh, that was more blue collar labor. In payment for manual labor, lift lift a heavy thing for me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I don't. I don't think the book exists. Um, Spice House would be a good resource to maybe put something like that out. A kid that I went to cooking school with interned interned there. That'd be cool. He always smelled like every spice at once. Yeah, it's like sensory overload, those places and like yeah, spice you... shops and like candle shops, like walking by the perfume department or something. And oh, God, I just can't handle it. It's too much. Yeah, by the way, guys, the Spice House, uh, they do great mail order. That's why we're showing for them. But I used to live down this. I worked down the street from uh, in Chicago. So I would just walk down there and walk in and it hits you in the brain. Like <laughs> it's it's an intense experience. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, if anyone is uh, going to do a uh, Spice House Christmas shopping, because it would be a great thing for Christmas gifts for your dorky culinary friends that like uh, food, uh, their candied ginger is the best in the universe. The candied ginger, the Maharaja curry powder, the Chinese five spice. The Maharaja- Everything they have is awesome, but those are the the bell cows for me. The, the Maharaja curry powder uh, has That's actual, the best curry powder in the universe. It's got saffron threads in it. I mean, it's the real mm-hmm. thing. Now, once again, the um, actual Indian cooks that might be listening to this are rolling their eyes because once yep. again, uh, <laughs> curry powder is a lazy Western ingredient. But the thing is, curry powder is a valid Western ingredient. Like the American dish chicken country captain is a dish. Uh, it's a chicken stew in like a tomato sauce with curry powder and raisins and 
it's an American dish. It's just an American dish uh, that uh, a, a spice trader uh, who ended up in the port of Char Charleston had his housekeeper make for him because he missed the food that he had when he was over in India. You know, like that's cool. The French will put a little curry powder in, you know, when they do an eggplant puree, they'll throw a little curry powder in there. You know, uh, it happens all the time. Or then even like lately, the Vadovan curry powder, that got really mm -hmm. hot when Pierre, uh, Pierre Gagnier put it on blast. And to, for a minute, every, it seems like every fine dining uh, chef in America, including us, was <laughs> was using Vadovan a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, spectacular. It's a great curry powder, but man, did that ingredient get hot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I don't mean hot like spicy. I mean like it was it was it was trendy. It got it was everywhere. Yeah. Um, well, not for nothing. It was one of the most. It was one of the only usable recipes out of Kenyar's cookbook. Oh yeah. He's, uh... <laughs> He's not a good cookbook author. A great chef, a Michelin three star beast. His cookbooks are always a bit pants. Yeah. <laughs> nothing but respect. Absolutely. For the, nothing but respect for the guy. But he only get his cookbooks if they're on discount. Um. They're yeah. nice. They're nice Cut food. Rate only. They're nice food porn. Nothing more. Uh, I mean, I'm, yes. sorry, I'm sorry we didn't answer your question better, but you know, the answer to the question is we don't know. And if anybody has a book that's purely about the method of spice blending, let us know. Because I yeah, don't let think, us know. Uh, we were really stumped, but I, yeah, I think that in this case, just like this is one time where you can look at the flavor bible and just ignore everything that's not a spice and just kind of use that. Like cinnamon is everywhere in Moroccan cooking. And it's usually combined with cumin and olive oil and lemon and hot pepper mm -hmm. and uh, cilantro. And so to a North African, they would be like, oh, cinnamon, it's a, it's a savory spice. Whereas in the West, it's almost always thought of strictly as a cookie spice. When, a, when, an, true. when an American thinks about ginger, they think about powdered ginger and, you know, baking their, uh, baking their ginger snaps with it. Whereas, um, when you think about ginger and oh i don't know the cuisine of half the world uh like all of asia <laughs> or at least all of central and southern asia and the entire indian subcontinent and a lot of places in africa think of ginger as an incredibly important base flavor that goes in almost all savory food so mm -hmm. that's that's what i mean by cultural attitudes being so important because to an american cinnamon and cumin together sounds really weird and to a french person cinnamon and apple sounds really weird that's an american thing like it's there's so I, I just don't know how you it's God, it's a great question. I just don't know. I, know, how you, right? <laughs> I don't know how you'd get it away from those cultural ties. I just I have no idea. Like, I just don't know. Uh, but if anybody it's just wants kind of something you might want to lean into, though, I mean, yeah, I'd say start with that. Sometimes, you know, you like you see it as a disadvantage and you keep pushing it so far as to where it becomes an advantage again. You know, it's like it's a disadvantage that there's all these cultural boundaries and things like that. But if you really lean well, into it and get me, super hyper-focused on it, maybe you could like find a new angle. For me, the cultural boundaries aren't a disadvantage for me. They're no, garments. not at all. But like, some, some might think that, but. Well, and also Nate, this is, this is a principal difference in the way you and I think culinarily. Like yeah. you, you really started to push the envelope with unorthodox flavor combinations Whereas when I would want to do something unorthodox, it would just be something that was unorthodox in the West, but perfectly normal in Morocco. Uh, right. or, or, and so I would be sort of pursuing aromatic signatures that I had used before. Whereas you were perfectly willing to put white peach curd with green olives and I'll be goddamn that actually worked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's the big difference. Um, and if I am going to break one of those traditional cultural 
norms, it'll be just to subvert expectations. Like I did a tomato salad and instead of basil, because everybody reaches for the basil, I did a little marjoram. Or I made a pork mm -hmm. sausage, an Italian style pork sausage, and instead of reaching for the fennel seed like everybody does, I reached for caraway because for me, caraway and fennel have the kind of a similar contour, yep. but, a very, but a very different aroma. Like they're, they're different aromas that kind of fill the same size hole. So uh, I made my Italian sausage forever with caraway. Uh, and it was like, people didn't even really pick up on it. They just noticed that there was something a little different about it. That's as out there as I'll get. Nate is way less burdened by that kind of stuff when he cooks. Yeah. So it, I guess I guess my best advice is to just taste, 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 and smell, and just kind of develop your own flavor profiles. And then when you're buying spices, like cooking is buying, it boils down to that too. So you know, buy in small amounts, buy you know as best you know spices you can find because it, it it all matters. It all accumulates. You know, like good spices aren't that much more expensive than you know. Spices can get expensive, but you also don't sure. need that much of them. You need very little. Like of them. buy them in one ounce bags until you know you like them. Exactly, and then that's what's great about the spice house too. They do these things called flat packs, and they're the same volume and amount as a jar, but they just go in these little envelopes and they ship for free. You can get like a half a cup of most of your favorite spices for like nine bucks. There's a little bit of human drama going on over here. Uh, wife just walked into the room and heard me talk about how you could buy spices in small amounts. And then she walked over to my absolutely jammed pantry cupboard, uh, <laughs> picked it open while looking at me with a face that said, you're a fucking hypocrite. And then did a little Vanna White-esque hand motion. But it, but like instead of like, oh, look at me, it was, hey, dickhead, look at this. And she's right. I'm a little bit of a culinary pack rat. Uh, I like having a big pantry. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, Nate. You're the worst. Oh, I am the worst. <laughs> All right, but let's go ahead and pivot because uh, time is money. Okay. Um, great question. I'm sorry we couldn't answer it. So we were talking about spices and talking about cookie spices, and uh, it is the Christmas season, and uh, we thought we'd uh, just do a, a few a, a few discussions about like what restaurant cooking is like around Christmas time. Just talk a little bit about uh, our experiences cooking on Christmas, and uh, you know maybe discuss some dishes, some uh, little uh, hints and tricks, and. Uh, you know, just take it from there. We, uh, like I said, we only planned for about a minute and a half before we started. Uh, <laughs> yep, yep. So yeah, so cooking on Christmas is uh, that's a tough one. And note, like, I'm not talking about home cooking on Christmas. I'm talking about yeah, restaurants. restaurants. Everyone's got their own thing at home. Some people do a ham. Some people do a turkey. Some people do roast beef. Some people have an oyster roast. You know, uh, definitely born down south, the oyster roast thing. I'm talking about you know the kind of stuff that you serve on rest in restaurants on and around Christmas. But first, what do you think, Nate, about the big issue of do you open on Christmas? I mean, that's a that's a real double-edged sword. Like, if you're in a hotel and people, you know, they're booking and things like that, like you kind of have to you kind of have to be oh, open. Hotel restaurants don't get to be closed. That's that's that goes yeah. around saying that comes with the territory. Um, I mean, I know some restaurants like that's their shtick and like these guys will work on Christmas day, they'll sign up for it and they'll celebrate, you know, a day or two after because they're so busy and they make a killing. Yeah. That's the thing. Like at social wine bar, Christmas day was always the biggest sales day of the year. Right. 
always. And I know that to be true at a lot of places. And it's like, how do you, how do you close on your biggest sales day? And then I suppose the response is you capitalist greedy asshole. How can you make people work on Christmas? But here's the thing. A lot of people have to work on Christmas. Most of the people wanted to be there if, if it's lucrative. Yeah. Well, especially front of the house. I mean, yep. In front of the house, you the, like you have to fight to work Christmas in front of the house. It goes to the most senior people because you'll make three times what you make in a normal shift. You're busier. Yep. You usually open longer, and people tend to make it rain on Christmas. Yep. Like Christmas is a good day to be a bartender, but the, like lots of people have to work on Christmas. Movie theater employees have to work on Christmas. Uh, hotel employees, medical staff, yep. uh, law enforcement, public safety services have to work on Christmas. Military. I don't actually don't know about the military, but I'm sure there's some military personnel that have to work on Christmas just because I mean, it's not quite essential worker status, but damn near like cops. Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of different types of people that have to work on Christmas. So I don't get too into the dogma of it. I think if your staff is really, really against it, and you want to do it, there should be some quid pro quo. Like at social, at social, they made sure that the, the, a, a few days before Christmas, there was always a Christmas party that was a legendary rager. Like, they really showed out. They were very good about stuff like that. Um, they uh, just put a huge, lavish party on for everybody. And they really showed, you know, they, they brought in outside staff to work it. They really wanted to show out, like, yeah, we're open on Christmas. And you all have to work. But on the other hand, we're going to give you a party. It wasn't like a it was like a family Christmas party. It was just crazy. It was great fun. And, um, you know, I understand that like, you just got to give a little something to your staff, do Christmas bonuses, uh, have a party, take everyone out to dinner. If it's a small staff place, like it just it show a little bit of reciprocity for your staff. If, if, if there's a lot of anti-Christmas culture work, but I don't think I could say I'm turning my back on the biggest sales day of the year. The margins are so razor thin. What really always always got me was the places like that are open on Christmas. And it's like, why are we here? This isn't even worth it. We bought all this food. We spent all this time doing all this menu. We got all this product that we never usually have in house. And we're going to sell what 45% of it, maybe 50. That's the thing. Cause you can't run out. I, the Christmas menu is always a little difficult. I I feel like, At, once again, at social, we would maybe do a Christmas special. Like uh, we did something one year where we did a, a lobster uh, linguine dish. Uh, and so it was like lobster pasta. You got half a bug and we did a cognac uh, cream sauce uh, sweetened with a little apple puree. And um, mm-hmm. I don't even remember the garnish. I barely remember the dish. But half a lobster on top of some pasta for like 28 bucks. And they flew I had enough to do 60 orders and they were gone. So I think a good idea, like having a Christmas special makes financial sense. But that makes a lot more sense or, yeah, you know, something the, that's the special kinda... menu. The special menu thing is, I think that only really works for um, like, you could do a special tasting menu. If you're, if you could, if you're someplace that could do a ticketed event like next or Alinea, because you know what you're going to sell. You say, we're going to do 150 covers. Uh, there's, you know, it's, it's tasting menu, so there's no choices. That's a way to make money with it. 
Right. But what's but then you'd be surprised at the amount of people that make reservations around and they'll do it at three or four different places and then they'll pick the day of and it'll leave the other three places with an empty table. Well, actually, that's why I specifically use the example of next. Yeah, uh, because, because Grant, if you buy a ticket, you're good. Yeah, Grant's Grant's restaurants are a ticketed events. And I think about that is that you gotta be you gotta be good to pull that off. Because basically mm-hmm. you're saying if you buy a ticket here, you don't have the right to cancel. You have to sell your ticket. Just like if you bought tickets to a Cubs game was, was Grant's analogy. Right. Chicago, Chicago guy. Um, so I think the ticketed thing is a great idea. If you're doing that kind of food, uh, and I think some people are shocked by that because like, oh, I'm paying up front. It's like you have to pay up front for every sporting event and every concert. Yeah. If you want to go see wrestling or if you want to go see like a stand-up comedy show, any of that, you buy a ticket. Making restaurants ticketed events I think is the next thing. I don't think that technique's going to be available for all restaurants. And I feel like there's going to be some restaurants that only do it at holiday times, but I think that's, that's fine. It protects the owner. It protects the restaurant so much. Yeah. Well, like, I can't uh, tell you how many times I've been burned. Holiday attrition is a, is a bad problem. Um, but what, and I so- think the, and I think the average person would be shocked at the amount of people that go out to dinner and have their meals like, in a restaurant and not at home on yeah i was blown away it's crazy like when i got to my first hotel job uh which was the peninsula hotel in chicago they all started talking about the thanksgiving schedule and i i thought i was naive i was 24 maybe and i took that to mean we're going to talk about you know who like people are going to be going out of town we're going to be closed for a little while no they meant thanksgiving we're going to do 1800 covers and we need to, it, it totally changed the way the restaurant was run. Um, to, the, 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 the restaurant I worked at shut down and just became overflow seating for the Thanksgiving dinner. And it was an incredible undertaking. They made so mm-hmm. much money. They made so much money. And I, I just like, cause here's the thing. If you're closed on Christmas, then you're going to be closed on Thanksgiving and Christmas Eve too, probably. And then maybe New Year's Day. Now, New Year's Day sucks. I support being closed on New Year's Day. but um, That's one of the slowest restaurant days of the year. Well, it's, it depends on the restaurant. For, most, for most places. It depends on the restaurant. So if, yeah, you, work, yeah. if you work at a place that's kind of down market, uh, it can be the witching hour because no one has to work. No, right. one, no one makes a reservation. And like bar and grills get destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, New Year's Eve is streaky, hard to predict, and weird. And there's no deliveries ever on New Year's Day. Uh, New Year's Day is like a, a Sunday of a Sunday. You know, there's like, you can't get anything. So if you get wiped out the night before at New Year's Eve, man, what, at Wolfgang Puck's one time on New Year's Day, we ran out of every type of chicken. Like there were like 12 chicken dishes on the, it was chicken spring roll, chicken quesadilla, four different chicken pizzas, two different kinds of roast chicken, chick, chick, uh, chicken pasta. And we just 86 them one at a time until at the end we had no forms of chicken at all. <laughs> It was a problem. <laughs> like yeah. that, that day, that day felt like it was never going to end. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't fault people for going out on Christmas and whatever, no. like that's fine. And I don't fault restaurants for opening. Um, but you know what, you know, you know what I see a, a slippery lot? slope, man. And I think the average person would be really surprised to learn how many people go out. You know the demographic that we got a lot of uh, in uh, at social. It was a lot of European families on vacation. 
Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because they get time off work, and if they live someplace like Germany where it's going to be ass degrees outside, they're like, oh, let's go to a, let's go to a Southern American city. You know, we'll be able to walk around just wearing light jackets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Florida places get it in the, on the chin. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's it's a valid choice to choose to go out on Christmas. It's a perfectly valid choice. And the rest maybe of that's, us, Maybe it's so busy down in the Southeast just because of the weather. I mean, we are... Uh, we're a kind of a winter vacation destination. Yeah, I mean, that's true. If, if you lived in, you know, the Catskills and it was Christmas and you had a week off work and your wife was like, let's go away from the feet of snow. You'd be like, <laughs> yes, that sounds good. <laughs> that's you know? true. That's true. I mean, I've gone fishing on Christmas day. Charleston's beautiful on Christmas. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, the, I think it's okay to be open on Christmas. I don't think that makes you a Grinch. I also come from a serious hardline restaurant work mentality where I'm like, that's the job. Do you or don't you want the job? Like, I think good cooks don't say no. Good cooks get there. And uh, if working on holidays is a problem, that's your problem. I yeah. mean, holidays are the first I- I'm fine with that for the most part. But, um, you know, I think it's concept appropriate to Oh yeah, I mean, and, if you, and and especially if there's a, a history to go off of, like you can go back and look at what you did, like the numbers, like the year before or the year before, and it's viable. Then, you know, right? That, if I, that, that's your answer right there. But if you're a new restaurant and you're not sure, or last year was a dud, man, you know, you gotta you gotta really you got a serious decision to make. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to be open on Christmas by any stretch. What oh, I'm yeah, saying yeah. is that. What I'm saying is that I don't think less of restaurants for being open on Christmas. Like, if it's a burrito place, then you're probably not going to go there because who has a burrito on Christmas? And also because Mexican restaurants, your entire staff's Roman Catholic. Uh, <laughs> you know, being open on Christmas would be an issue for them. But, um, you know, and one, one thing I've seen restaurants do that I like is they just put up a poster that says, New Year's, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Christmas Eve. You can request off one of these and then they just go first come first serve like whoever put their name on the list first because different people like different holidays like my sister-in-law she's not super into christmas thanksgiving's her favorite thing me i give two shits about every holiday every single one except mardi gras halloween and the world series mm-hmm. uh so like i'm just I, I work every holiday because just i work i've worked every holiday like everywhere i've worked where they say like, who wants to work the holidays i say i'll work all of them so someone else doesn't have to, you know, there are people in the game who are just cold eyed, cold hearted Grinches like me who are perfectly willing to work holidays so that people with kids can have off. Yeah. That's like, awesome, when, man. When you make your schedule, give Christmas morning preference to people with children, you know, kids are bored and usually asleep by 4 PM on Christmas. So they could go to whoever it is could come in and work a PM shift. Um, you know, like, but, you know, give the 22-year-olds preference on New Year's Eve. They're the only ones young enough to enjoy that shit anyway. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like people who are really, people whose family lives outside the city, give them preference on Thanksgiving because it's hard for them to get away. And that you could give them, because the days around Thanksgiving are all dead. So yeah. if you could, like, day before Thanksgiving is a snooze. Black Friday is a snooze. The weekend always sucks. So give, give the people off that want to travel out of state thanksgiving off other people could just take wednesday or friday off and have their own thanksgiving with their family if their family's in town 
So I think there's a right and wrong way to do it. You could do it. I mean, ultimately, it all, it all comes down to money has to be made. Business is business. But you can do it like a jerk or you can do it like a conscientious company and treat your people right. And I think that that's a huge thing. That's a really big thing. And people are really looking for that nowadays, too. So the yeah. choice is yours, friend. So that's my thought on that. And then I just we don't have much time left. But just in the in the Christmas spirit, I, I, like, just talk a little bit about some of the cool, uh, some some cool and uh, perhaps not cool Christmas dishes that I've, we've done over the years. And I think I have a little more to go on than Nate did on this one. So, uh, so I'll sort of quarterback. And uh, we'll just go through it. First off, on Christmas cookies, I'm going to say a little something about Heather A. One Blow Flurry and Fudgy Fingers, the last scion of the House of Keebler. <laughs> Charleston, Charleston's best pastry chef, neck and neck with Mark Hayward Washington, a.k.a. Swanky. Uh, note that they have both been my pastry chef, so I'm obviously biased, but they're both beasts in their own right. But I'm here to talk about Heather's uh, ginger snaps. Have you had those? Yes, they're so goddamn good. They're the best ginger snaps ever. And the reason why is because she dices up that Spice House candy ginger and folds it through the ginger snaps like chocolate chips. I didn't know that. That's the secret. Oh. Chunks chunks of chewy, sugary ginger that just get baked right in there. So you just gave an elf secret uh, it's not on an air it's not and an elf. she's going to kill you. No, she's not. It's not an elf secret. If I say where she got the idea, then she'll kill me. <laughs> i don't want to know i don't, don't want to die don't worry elf your secret's safe with me i'll take that one to the grave yeah you got a, you got a favorite christmas cookie tell me about your grandma's cookies um they're just kind of like drop cookies um you just kind of cream butter a little bit of cream cheese um some spices you drop in some eggs a little bit of flour and then you can add whatever nuts or dried fruit you want to it lots of cocoa powder and just bake them and they just kind of crackle open yeah they're pretty good they're kind of a holiday tradition for my family um the kids don't really like them because they're not very sweet and you know it's super dark dark cocoa powder lots of it so it's a little bitter well, my um, wife will love them but they're that's really it. good with coffee and like, you know, sitting around playing that's, cards and stuff like that's that. That's everything D likes in a cookie. Not too sweet, ultra bitter, uh, subtly and spiced. I, I intentionally, I intentionally left out the fruit for her. Oh, that's good to know. I know she hates fruit and chocolate. It's, it, she does. It's so please tell her I was thinking of her. I will. <laughs> um, does your family ever do anything with um, with like a seafood? Because uh, I know you got some Sicilians over there, right? And they've got the they do the feast of the seven fishes. Has your family ever done uh, seafood on Christmas? No, not too much. Christmas has always been more Americanized. Yeah, for my family. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely familiar with the feast of seven fishes. So I've done that in restaurants and things like that. What, um, uh, that what is kind a of big Sicilian thing. What kind of stuff would you do for your Feast of Seven Fishes? It's like, they're not like crazy dishes, you know. No, it's like little, almost tapas for one of a better yeah, term. Yeah, it kind of is, you know, like Mediterranean fishes and like bronzino. It's just real simple stuff with like lemon juice and herbs and, you know, capers and olives. and. Yeah, the Italians don't do a ton to seafood, know, do they? And, they? and they don't really mess with it much. They just it's, keep it really, really simple. Lots of olive oil lemon and yeah your lemon it's delicious but it's you know it's you know really really simple food just good ingredients like the way they treat a lot of stuff yeah i mean sometimes 
when they're doing an Italian style menu, it can be kind of hard to conceptualize the fish because Italians just don't do much with it. And uh, like a lot of times Americans want like an actual fish dish and the Italians would be like, no, oh, there, there's the fish. It's on a platter. It's got it's beautiful. We'll it's, got it. a, it's got a drizzle <laughs> of olive oil, a pinch of sea salt and a squeeze of lemon on it. That's all it needs. If you put anything else on it, I'm going to yell at you because, you know, mm-hmm. and but because uh, that's how Italians is. But um, <laughs> but then next to it, they'll have a contorno, like a beautiful pile of braised fennel or something like that. Like, yes. So sometimes Americans can be frustrated by the simplicity of Italian menus, but I think it's their beauty. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it, took, it took me a while to come to that. I mean, like uh, Mikey over at Baco in uh, Mount Pleasant. Yep. By the way, if anyone lives in the Charleston area, go to Baco on Mount Pleasant. Uh, the chef, Michael, is very, very good. Honest, salt of the earth dude. Uh, just does things uncompromisingly, does things his own way, and as he could be more po- he could be more popular if he would like just play ball and do like Southern Italian Americanized stuff. But instead, they're like the good guys from the Big Night, uh, and he's just not doing that Jimmy Pesto food. He's doing his thing, and his thing is ultra traditional. You should really check it out. Nate, back me up. Oh, absolutely! Great guy, great cook, great spot. Check it out. It's really delicious. My buddy Tom's dad uh who uh, passed away many years ago uh but his recipe was for pasta with a tomato and cuttlefish ragu that was his christmas thing that that is a really good combo that's the first time i've ever had squid is in tomato ragu it was a that's a roman Roman, he was from rome so that's i think that's like a lazio kind of thing Uh um i I thought i thought that was really intriguing i did a feast of seven fishes dish at Burwell's when I was there, um, just because I was doing a Christmas menu, uh, I had to, and I thought, you know, what kind of seafood is Christmassy? And, you know, I didn't want to do pumpkin spiced fish. I, all, I had a lot of <laughs> ideas, but they were all bad. And then finally, I just Googled like Christmas fish dishes and the Feast of the Seven Fishes came up. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. That would be a, like a whole thing. That would have to be like what I was doing for the night. And that's not going to work. Burwell's was a steakhouse. So we were going to sell. 60% steaks. Um, so the solution instead was uh, to do uh, a special for one night only using a bunch of stuff I could repurpose after. Um, but the Feast of the Seven Fishes, I did it as a, in the pan ragu. So fish number one was a seared piece of, I think, tile fish. I was whatever, you know, you don't always get to pick what white fish you use. You just call the fish guy and ask what's popping. And, but that day was tile fish. Um, so the fish would just get seared Meanwhile, build a ragu in a pan, and it would be like a couple of mussels, a couple of little neck clams, um, one shrimp, uh, and like saute all that, and then hit it with a splash of white wine and cover it so the, sh- uh, the clams and mussels popped open. They threw the shrimp in about halfway, so it wasn't going to get totally like cooked. While you're building your seafood ragu, uh, you also saute some fingerling potatoes, like just to get some color on them. Yeah, that sounds good. And then so that that's you've got your your three shellfish so far clams mussels shrimp then you know add your potatoes to the ragu and then to the ragu that's four add your potatoes to the ragu and then also add some flavoring stuff to the ragu stuff that doesn't really need to cook for me it was sliced castelvetrano olives uh, a pinch of capers and some uh, sliced piquillo peppers I realized piquillos aren't Sicilian but they're what I had lying around and bringing in Italian peppers just for this dish would have been a huge waste. Um, and so now you've got this potato, pepper, caper, olive, shellfish ragu. Uh, and then at the last second you throw in just a pinch of like, like turn the pan off and then throw in 
a couple of shucked oysters and a little pinch of calamari so that they just just barely cook in the heat of the ragu uh, once it's been turned off because you don't want to cook oysters or calamari hard. So the heat's already gone. You're just letting the ambient heat from the ragu cook them. And then to finish it, because you're at six fishes now, to finish it while the broth is still hot, you swore, I had a bunch of room temperature anchovy butter. I just basically took 60-40 anchovies and butter, pureed the hell out of them, and then passed them through a tammy. And then had, a, had that sitting on top of the station. And the last thing you do is swirl some of that into the sauce to give it its seasoning. And then drop the, uh, drop the piece of uh, finished fish on top of that. I'd eat the hell out of that. It, was a, it wasn't a true Feast of the Seven Fishes. It was definitely a Fancy Pants restaurant dish inspired by the Feast of the Seven Fishes. I think it's really smart, though. You use seven different seafood dishes. You know, it's really, that was really, that's really clever. I'll, I'll put a recipe for it up when uh, we do uh, the blog. I don't have a picture, unfortunately. Maybe I won't do that tomorrow because I, I better do this tomorrow. But maybe I'll do a Feast of the Seven Fishes and recreate the dish just cooking for me one night. And I'll put the whole recipe for the whole shebang up on hotdogsandcaviar.blogspot.com. Because the thing that sucked about it is no one gets the fish on the Christmas menu. Like, Nobody gets the fish. Like, you'll sell, if you have, like, for instance, steak, lobster, turkey, something exotic like pork belly and fish, the fish will be the last thing you sell. The only yeah, thing you'll that will sell, sell, like, five fish. On, on 60 people. The only Maybe. Thing, the only thing that will sell less is whatever your vegetarian option is. So, but I didn't care because everything that was in this fish dish was something that I could use over the next week. And uh, the week after Christmas, uh, Christmas to a New Year's is an incredibly busy week. So if you did bring it, if, if you're smart about the product you bring in, you might be able to make some money with it. Unfortunately, the hardest thing to do that with is turkey. Because the day after Christmas and the day after Thanksgiving, people will punch you if you try to get them to eat turkey. Yep. And be wary of rabbit react. I won't say the name of the restaurant, but I was definitely served duck riette that was absolutely leftover turkey leg once. Oh, uh, absolutely. I wasn't and that mad. pisses me off. It wasn't mad. You think mad. I'm an idiot. <laughs> it wasn't mad because it was funny. I wasn't mad because it was funny. Um, but the same the same charcuterie plate, it's the single worst charcuterie plate I ever had. The same charcuterie plate had some smoked salmon on it, which is already controversial to include in a charcuterie plate. But this wasn't smoked salmon like Gravelox. This was like a restaurant-sized portion, like an entree portion of salmon that was smoked hard in a hot smoker. So what happened, <laughs> obviously, was they had a pan of portions of salmon that were starting to go. Uh, so they just chucked them in the smoker to save them. It was the hack <laughs> it was the hackest, most ghetto, horrible charcuterie plate I ever had. And the only reason I wasn't pissed is because I thought the whole thing was hilarious. And there was a slice of pate that was honestly pretty good. So. A decent pate, uh, the world's worst non-duck duck riette, and <laughs> and the smoked salmon was the single shittiest thing I've ever seen in a restaurant. Like, the only food I've ever had that was worse was I had a chicken bake from Costco, and it was like it was like a parody of a calzone. It's the worst food I've ever had, but this was the worst food I ever had at a restaurant. <laughs> oh god! So yeah, yeah. So but the other thing is turkey's cheap. So if you end up sitting on a bunch of turkey. You just make it for staff meal until your staff is ready to mutiny and then just throw it away. Or Turkey stock is awesome. Turkey Turn stock it in is, the stock. Yeah. Or, um, or the other thing you could do, honestly, take it to your local homeless shelter or crisis ministry. Yes. The two day old roast turkey that you're tired of looking at will make a world of difference for those people and the work they're trying they to do. They could feed a hundred, they could make hundreds of meals. Yeah. If you have like just, just 
if you have like 10 pounds of leftover turkey meat, just cut it off the bone and deliver it to them in hotel pans cold. They'll take it and they'll be so happy. And yep. uh, they, uh, you know, so always, you know, around the holidays, think about stuff like that. If you do have product you have to burn out, burn it out the right way. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's incumbent on all of us to try to make a difference because the world sucks. Um, I have two more little uh, Christmas food notes. One, yeah. I was thinking about our Christmas menus back in the day. Nate and I make this potato puree. Tarver and Nate developed it. I just learned it from them. And it's, let me put it this way. The potato puree at Robichon is almost as good. Um, and I know because I've had it. Robichon was excellent. And Robichon, it's perfect potato puree. But the Tarver and Nate method is more perfect. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, perf perfect is a minimum standard at restaurants like this. Um, but Tarver and Nate's way, the thing is, I'm not saying that Robichon's is not as good. I'm saying Robichon is a relatively busy restaurant that gives potato puree to everyone that comes in. It's part of their standard tasting menu because this potato puree is very famous. Also, I don't think that Tarver and Nate would have been able to develop that potato puree without building on what Robichon had done before. You know, like that's, that's just sort of Robichon set the standard for good potato puree in restaurants and then Tarver and Nate perfected it. The thing about Tarver and Nate's potato puree is it takes one person a solid hour to make it and you could only make a six pan at a time, like a quart and a half. Uh, so there's no way that a seriously busy restaurant could do that. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but, so we, we do it. The for, yield um, is not great. The yield is not great. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, I, I won't, it's, it's far too complex to try to go into. Um, we'd have to have a whole blog, maybe a whole, whole podcast episode on how to do that. Maybe next time Tarver gets in, we can talk about it a little bit, but yeah, but, it's uh, pretty, it's pretty involved. It's pretty involved. Uh, but the, the basic gist is that you dry the potatoes out as much as possible. You force as much moisture as you possibly can until you start to risk burning them. And then all those cells that have been part, like that held water and are now parched for water, you fold, you get butter to go back in. So that it swells back out and all that starch gets, gets rehydrated, except instead of rehydrated, it gets relipidized or whatever. I just invented a word. You basically induce the potatoes to hold so much butter and to the point where it's almost a soup. Like you can't really stand a spoon in it, but it's just amazing. And we did it all the time. And I just thought it was funny because on Christmas, we would call it once a year potato puree. But we do it all we the time. We made that shit every day. Yeah. We, <laughs> I just thought that was, it was like a cute name in the moment. But, um, you know, it was, it was just funny to me because I'm like, man, we make this stuff constantly. I wish this was once a year potato puree. <laughs> <laughs> We made we made a lot for the holidays. That was a bitch. I did um I did it at Burwell's only with specials. Like I, on another uh, on the same Christmas, I had um Snake River American Wagyu paves. Uh, really really nice. I, I I went I did that. I went a little bit cheaper just so I could use um you know use the nice Wagyu product. I used a bit of a cheaper cut. I got them on special, and so I did a little four ounce mini steak, like a little petite uh -huh. petite sirloin. Uh, and then half a lobster it's for like a Christmas time surf and turf, uh, butter poached lobster. And then you use that potato puree for that. And I, I did, I made, we were going to do 200 people. I made 55 orders of it and it was gone by seven 30. Like I was fine with it. It was a special, I was like, while they last, we put it right on the menu and, oh, okay. um, Oh, it was a huge success. The thing is we, that, that, that's the good thing about Christmas specials. You still have the whole rest of the menu. And yeah. I think, I think limiting quantity on specials is good. Like at, uh, oh, Frontier, absolutely. at Bayless's place in Chicago, at Frontera Grill, they would only do so many 
chili rellenos. And so you knew they didn't take rezos. You had to wait in line. And the, it was well known if you want the chili relleno, if you want a chance at getting one, you got to be there before they open. And the heads knew that. And they packed the place out. And the first turn in all the rellenos. And then the second turn didn't have them. But I think that's cool. I think that kind of scarceness increases specialness. Oh, yeah. Creates anticipation. And oh, yeah. And I had one more. This is kind of a funny story. Uh, it's kind of gross. Um, but one last Christmas dish that I attempted <laughs> uh, <laughs> it did not exactly work out the way I wanted it to. Now, this was not for a restaurant. This was for a party for a bunch of restaurant workers. But, you know, we use those events to workshop stuff that we're working on, you know, like sometimes. So uh, I like doing, I think creme brulee is a great dessert for a non-pastry chef to have in their pocket because they're very, very easy to execute. They're pretty hard to screw up. And, um, you know, they, they're they not very time consuming. You can prepare them a day in advance and then just finish them with a bullet torch at the time of. Um, so I wanted to do uh, a holiday creme brulee uh, duet. So I, my thought was, okay, eggnog and candy cane. I'll do an eggnog creme brulee and a candy cane creme brulee. The eggnog creme brulee was super easy. Uh, it came together perfectly because creme brulee base is basically eggnog. It's cream, egg yolks, sugar, vanilla. Like, that's eggnog. It's also melted ice cream. It's all the same thing. Uh, by the way, guys, eggnog is melted ice cream. Uh, <laughs> and that is also one of the best nicknames I've ever heard for a cook. Who? Eggnog. Who's eggnog? He's... <laughs> my old buddy, my old pastry, uh, my old pastry chef I used to work with. She told me I used to work with a guy named Egg. They called him Eggnog because <laughs> he always showed up, but nobody really liked him. <laughs> <laughs> I like Eggnog, man. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that is that is really really terrific. Um, so the, the eggnog creme brulee, I just had my standard creme brulee base, like, like you do. I, I didn't put vanilla in it because I was going to go, I didn't, I didn't want to go just too straight down the middle, but then, uh, just, uh, burned off some curvassier and some bourbon and some rum, just mixed the three liquors, burned off the alcohol. Cause I tried to, I tried to make an eggnog creme brulee before and it didn't burn off the alcohol and it curdled the eggs and it was not good. Um, I mean, it wasn't bad it was just chunky mealy creme brulee so yeah that it was bad it was bad um so this time i was smart enough to burn off the alcohol and i basically just made nice eggnog and then cooked it in a water bath and it became eggnog creme brulee it was perfect success the candy cane creme brulee my idea was just to spice just instead of sugar just use equal weight powdered candy canes to make the base um and what i learned was that there's enough candy cane flavor in a candy cane for the volume of sugar that there is, but it was too weak in the brulee base. Like, the, mm. you know what I mean? Because because you're adding a lot of cream and egg. Sure, a candy, sure. A candy cane is the exact right amount of candy cane, uh, the exact right amount of peppermint flavor to be a candy cane. Uh, when you right. take it and, and add it five times its volume of other stuff, you lose a lot of that candy cane. However, it wasn't a problem. That candy cane flavor is just oil of peppermint, and I had some oil of peppermint. Uh, so I just dripped that in there until it got the right flavor. Oh, by the way, uh, oil of peppermint. Do you remember the minty Sanchez? <laughs> oh yeah. A Manny, the pastry <laughs> chef at, uh, Tristan, who is a fine individual. And I've actually grown to be really good friends with her, but we did not love each other when we first met. And uh, she came up behind me one time 
and she had dipped her whole finger in oil of peppermint and she smeared her finger under my nose and just goes, Minty Sanchez. And <laughs> I mean, it was it actually wasn't all that unpleasant. It was just like, it was just like all of a sudden being inside a tube of toothpaste. Like it was all I could smell for like four hours. I was just like, oh, God damn it, Amanda. Of course, she laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Um, and I had to admit, that was pretty funny. It was better than when I gave Jordan a Telegio Sanchez. Uh, that was just rude. Uh, well, the reason oh, I, the minty Sanchez. That was great. So anyway, I, I had now I had pale pink creme brulee base that tasted properly of candy cane. But didn't it was, I thought the pink color would come through more. So I added a drop of red food coloring and it just got a little closer to looking like Pepto. And I'm like, okay, that's not what I want. So it was pretty pale pink still. So I took about a quarter of it out and, uh, and dribbled a few drops of red food coloring into it. And my, my vision, what I had in my head was pouring it back in and letting it kind of ribbon in. Um, uh-huh. And it didn't look great, but I was like, whatever. And I, I, I baked it. And then when it came out, when you put your spoon in it, you couldn't see the ribboning at all. It just looked like a, like, you know, when you crack an egg and it's bloody. Uh, so the jokers, yes. the jokers that I cooked, it was a, a, a beautiful tasting, completely disgusting looking uh, peppermint creme brulee uh, that I, I think, I, I think I was going to give up on peppermint creme brulee. It just shouldn't be a thing. But the guys that I was with uh, started razzing me about it and they started calling it the afterbirth of Christ. Uh, and... <laughs> no, they didn't. Yeah, uh, it, was uh, a, it was a Christmas miracle because all of a sudden everybody liked right it. Right out of the woodland critter Christmas. <laughs> uh, yeah, all of a sudden it was a hit. Like everyone hated it, and then it was just like, ah, ha, ha, after birth of Christ. I was like, good damn it, I hate you guys. <laughs> um, so that's my that's my Christmas cooking funny story. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> I never oh. told you that story? Oh, that's awesome. All right, well, Nate, uh, you ready to close this thing down? Yeah, man. All right, it's well, just, fun. just a little shorty episode today, just to cover a couple of fun topics, spices and Christmas. Uh, so we'd just like to thank you all for tuning in. Uh, and I think I will uh, recreate that Feast of Seven Fishes dish for dinner one night and uh, write up the whole recipe because it was a good dish. I, I, need, to, I need to get it back. Basically, you could call it the Feast of Seven Fishes, or you could call it Sicilian-style fish stew. That's probably a less obnoxious thing to call it. But um, what can I say? I'm an obnoxious guy. So, uh, <laughs> all right, well, thank you all so much for listening again. Speakeasy is going to play us out of here. Uh, I am the new Mouth of the South. Mouth of the South Jr., second only to the great Jimmy Hart, uh, Jesse Sutton. I'm working with Nate, Springboard, Spread Leg, Mood, Salt, Whiting. Uh, My back hurts. You're fine. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he's, he's more than just a spin kick, is what I'm saying. And he drops a flying elbow like Randy Savage. We'll see you all next week, uh, where we have uh, another, uh, you know, long discussion of food and uh, fart jokes or whatever it is we talked about that day. Uh, Speakeasy's going to play us out of here. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you. All right, cheers, y'all. Come on, come on, come on, little baby, my little darling, my little sister. Come on, baby, just keep your head up. Come on, baby, just keep your head up.